Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Here we are. (laughs) Hello, hello. Welcome to All the Things. Yes. I am Monique Dusan. And I am Krista Bontrager. And also known as Theology Mom. Yeah, I was going to say, here are you still? I always forget that part. And this is the show where we discuss all the things related to God, the Bible, and real life. Yes, thank you for joining us. If you are here with us, that means that it is officially Saturday. Woohoo! Yes, it is. All right. We love what? it being Saturday. We do. How and are you? I'm okay. Okay. We got other things we're supposed to do. Well, you know, sometimes I can ask you how you're doing. Okay. Well, I mean, well, it's a little it's a little hectic right now. It is. But we're doing OK. We so we are. had a, a good time this morning talking to our monthly partners. Yes. And if you are not a monthly partner for the Center for Biblical Unity. Check us out online at Center for Biblical dot com. And one, you can just check out who we are as a ministry. And if the Lord stirs your heart, please sign up to be a monthly partner and support the work that we're doing around race, justice and unity. Yeah, we're um, our monthly partners are people who give monthly. And then we have a special kind of coffee hour with them on the third Saturday of the month. It's a very intimate gathering. Super intimate. Yeah, it's usually like less 10 people or less, Mm -hmm. but then people can. Find out secret insider updates. And about- ask all kinds of questions. Yeah. So, yeah. That's pretty fun. So we had that this morning. And then this afternoon, we we did the super secret. That we'll thing. talk about later at okay. the end of the show. Yes. Yeah, stay tuned for the yes. super secret reveal. Yes. yes. All right. Now, tonight, our show is being brought to you by the Center for Biblical Unity. Uh, Theology Mom Podcast. And Family 210 Clothing. Yes. And there we are. And you can find us at family210.com for all of our family's designs. Yes. And all uh, the designs for Center for Biblical Unity. They're also there. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so um, depending on if you go, if you buy a Center for Biblical Unity shirt or a Family 210 shirt, the proceeds do go to support either the ministry or to support our family. So either yep. way, you are supporting us. us. That's yes. right. And we want to thank uh, Bob Bontrager working tirelessly behind the scenes with all of our shenanigans. There he is, the button pusher. See, the trick is always knowing what order to push the buttons in. And he's got a lot of buttons back there. Yes. So, um, and tonight's moderators, we want to say thank you to Alicia Moss and Jennifer Bytel. Yes. Thank you, ladies. Yes. We appreciate the service of our moderators each and every week, creating a Warm and welcoming environment. Um, oh, Jeremy. Okay, Jeremy Webb wants to know about your shirt. Why are you a professional? Oh, okay, so this shirt was sent to me um, and to you. You have one too from yeah. the Black and Blurred podcast. And they are two brothers who like just have an awesome podcast. They interviewed me. They talk about cultural things, real life things, but more than anything, they talk about the word and they keep it scriptural and biblical. And so I'm a professional party pooper, most likely because I go against culture and I just keep it real. Um, so there's a verse on the back and I can't remember what it is, but I turn around. Timothy. Yeah. Turn around. Turn around. This is on live TV. Yeah. Go ahead. All right. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness but instead expose them. Ephesians 5, 11. So the brothers 
or I don't know if they sell those or they just made it for us or I don't know what these shirts are. I don't know, but I know that Alisa, the favorite auntie, sorry, I'm putting my phone under my leg so it doesn't like run away. (laughs) You guys, this is tonight. Um, Alisa also has one. And so, okay. Yes. So that's the story behind the shirt. Go check out our friends at the Black and Blurred podcast. All right. So this is a live show, and tonight on the show, we have a very special topic. Yes. Um, We do get a fair amount of letters and inquiries and calls from inter-ethnic and transracial adoptive families, Um, especially during the George Floyd season. Yeah. People would reach out to us, and they were really emotionally struggling because the culture was telling them, that they were racially traumatizing their black and brown children, that they were colonizing them. We've had some hard interactions with parents and siblings. Yeah. So um, I think it, it, the gosh, a lot of the CRT, um, the CRT lingo or that ideology says, you know, white people colon are colonizers and, um, when you adopt what CRT looks like in the adoption world. And it has penetrated the adoption world. It has penetrated the adoption world. It looks like being told if you're white, that you are a colonizer, you're participating in colonization, you're robbing a child of their culture. Um, There's a lot of shame and guilt around white, black or white BIPOC, um, black indigenous people of color adoptions. And so you may um, remember who was it? The What was the, the woman in like Congress or Senate Barrett? Um, oh, she was the one who was nominated for a Supreme Court justice. And she had a couple of children. Coney had, Barrett or something. Yeah, Amy Coney Barrett. She had adopted from Haiti. Yes, she adopted them from Haiti. And the I feel like black Twitter went crazy. Like this white woman is, you know, adopting them and taking them from their culture and things like that. Now, mind you, the majority of these people who are saying these things have never been to Haiti. I have been to Haiti a couple of times. Okay. And I couldn't imagine the joy and relief, you know, of knowing that you get something different. There isn't a lot of opportunity in Haiti and, you know, having something else to me would just enrich their lives. Yeah. So tonight we're going to be talking to Ryan Bomberger from the Radiance Foundation about his experience of growing up in a an ethnically diverse family and also being um, an adoptive child. And he now runs the Radiance Foundation. So glad to be able to interview him. This is going to be a cold introduction. We haven't met Ryan yet, but we are Certainly excited to learn about his work uh, for adoption advocacy. I think he's going to be speaking with you soon. At no one even knows. Oh, never no mind. No one knows. I haven't. She's not I mean, speaking unless anywhere you, unless she's gone on the website. <laughs> I will be speaking at Wilberforce yeah. weekend again, and I am so excited. There's a whole story behind how I got there, but I am so excited to be able to to like call the family. Yeah. It's, it's, so gonna Ryan's going to be there, too. Yes, he so is. So you'll be able to meet face to face. OK, let's get him on here. Hopefully this works, Bob says. I see yeah. us. Yes. Hello. Here we go. Hello, Ryan. Well, hello there. Let's well, see if he can hear us. He doesn't have a mic connected yet. All right. All right. Hopefully wow. he gets the mic connected. We are um, 
both at Wilberforce, I'll just, you know, talk a little bit yeah. about what's happening at Wilberforce. At yeah. Wilberforce, the theme of the the conference is a life redeemed. Okay. And so we're going to be looking at what okay. are you redeemed for and what are you redeemed to? Okay. And see I'm what talking about. super excited. All right. So let's see if Ryan can hear us now. Oh, I can hear you. All well, right. Hello there. <laughs> yes. How are you? Good. How are you? Uh, I'm good. I just had a weekend of uh, basketball tournaments, so I'm in a makeshift sort of area here. So I'm glad you can hear and see me. Yes, we can hear and see you. Thank you for joining us. I don't know what it was with this weekend, but I'm telling you, <laughs> we're all weekend, we're all a little disheveled. We're all a little behind. Mm -hmm. So, well, welcome to the show, Ryan. It's great to meet you, and um, maybe. All right. So maybe you can do maybe let's just start with something simple while we all get situated of just telling us about yourself and a little bit about uh, your upbringing. Sure, sure. I am from your typical American family of 15. I have six brothers, six sisters, 10 of us were adopted and we are just a mixed group of kids from all kinds of different backgrounds, white and black, mixed uh, Native American, Vietnamese, some are disabled in some ways. Um, all of us have special needs, just like, you know, everyone watching here has special needs, and that is to love and to be loved. And we were loved like crazy by my parents, Henry and Andrea Bomberger. And so I, I was the first one adopted. Apparently it went really well. So every year there was a new flavor added to the family. So that that's my background. And to go a little deeper, I am you could say literally that 1% that is used 100% of the time to justify abortion. My birth mom experienced the horrific crime of rape, but yet she was courageous enough not only to give me life, but she gave me that incredible gift of adoption. She never could have known the beautiful reverberations that would emanate from that singular decision. I'm so grateful to my birth mom, and now I'm happily married to the love of my life, Bethany Bomberger. She and I co-founded the Radiance Foundation um, where we just dedicate our lives to illuminating that every human life has purpose. And we have four awesome kiddos, homeschool kiddos. And out of our four, two of our children were also adopted. That's a little of my background. Wow. That's, that's amazing. Just the stand, you know, like your own history and story, but then your own stand into, you know, adoption and looking at how you can also continue that legacy. Yeah, I know that um, I've been on your website quite a bit and been following you for for a while now. And I know that she'll be the first one to say, I've been following. Have you heard of Ryan? I've been trying to get him on he the show. Needs, we need him on the show. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that, that's good. Yes. I'm, glad, yeah. I'm glad we finally caught up. It's yeah. Been a while. Yeah. Well, I, I know that you do a lot with pro-life advocacy and, you know, part of your story about your your birth mom is just such a powerful component of your story because you're right. That issue is used a hundred percent of the time to, um, to try to give kind of this, this exception, I guess, to abortion. And um, I guess I'm just wondering, like, is that something that you, you talk about as part of your, your ministry and, and addressing that concern for people? And, and what would be your best case of, of 
of why a child conceived in rape is also valuable and, and ought to live. Absolutely. Well, it is something that I am able to share. And it's amazing because it's a very disarming story. It's a very disarming narrative. And when I go and speak on college campuses, for instance, it gives me um, gives me something a little different than other speakers who are talking about the issue of abortion. I do talk about a myriad of social issues, um, and myriad of you know injustices, but it's really a great gateway into all of this and understanding that every human life has value, whether an equal value, equal and irrevocable value, whether you're planned or unplanned, able or disabled. And so, yes, I get to use that. And what I emphasize, the fact that none of us control the circumstances of our conception. None of us. I mean, it'd be weird if you did, but none of us do. And so the circumstances of our conception don't change the condition of our worth. And so what I represent to many people is that tangible example of the fringe cases, the exceptions cases that actually give so much shape to the, the discussions and, and conversations about abortion. What did you say? You said the circumstances of your conception do not change the value of your worth. The condition of your worth. The condition. Yes. You, you know what? If I was at Black Church, I'd give you a fan. You better <laughs> come on and preach that. Thank you. Well, preach it. See, we, we go ahead. We fan on this show. Um, and it, it that is just such a powerful statement because many of us are conceived in less than perfect conditions. You know, like my mother was unmarried and, you know, things like that. And and it didn't make for the best circumstances. There were hardships. Yeah, there were hardships the same way that you can have hardships when you have two parents, too. But it does not change the condition of your value. Dang, that's deep. (laughs) If you hear that at Wilberforce, you just look straight ahead. (laughs) That's all I'm saying. We don't need you to be like, hey, and try to take me off the stage. Just, you know. (laughs) <laughs> if I speak before you, just 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 look straight. Now, before we jumped on, um, we were talking about critical race theory in the adoption world. Uh huh. And I know it's coming in. I know that it's it's been there for a while. We've had quite a few conversations, like phone conversations, with people who are struggling to um, to move forward in adoption. What do you think the effects are? Like I said, kind of what I think, but what do you think the effects of critical race theory are in the adoption world? Uh, Disastrous. They are disastrous. We're actually going from a place where we, we were looking at vulnerable children, regardless of their hue, regardless of their background, who needed permanence, who needed love. And that's why, for instance, in 1994, because of the, the reality that black and brown children were lingering in foster care longer because there simply weren't enough black individuals or couples uh, available to adopt. And of course, we need to increase recruiting, absolutely. But because of that, the Multi-Ethnic Placement Act um, was passed and it, it barred using race, putting that in quotes because we're all one human race, but it barred using race as a factor in considering placement. And that's really important because when a child is languishing in foster care, let me just tell you, having been, well, I was in foster care for a very short time, but I have siblings who were in foster care for years. The last thing that is on their mind is that they want a mom or dad or mom and dad who look just like them. Mm-hmm. They want someone to love them. 
They want someone to care about them, to, to see their worth. They just want to be loved, period. Culture, we place so much emphasis on culture. And that's what critical race theory does. It's culture is everything. Color is everything. And it's bogus. And it's, it's detrimental to the very children that they're claiming to want to help. In the case in point of critical race theory um, spreading like a cancer into the adoption movement is Bethany Christian Services. Bethany Christian Services, a once great evangelical organization I used to serve on their board in a local chapter in Virginia Beach and in Atlanta. They have now gone full woke on all of this. And I even hate using that word woke because it is just blindness. It's absolute blindness because they're talking about equity and they're talking about you know, diversity and inclusion and all this and, and apologizing. That's what they're doing. They're on this apology mm-hmm. tour for how wrong it's been to place black and brown children with white parents. What? See, this is the same organization, by the way. This is how CRT has damaged the, the adoption movement for those who've embraced it. Bethany Christian Services is perfectly fine as of March 2021, perfectly fine with placing vulnerable children in same-sex homes. But don't worry, they think it's dangerous to place black and brown children in white yep. homes. Mm-hmm. What kind of not there's nothing biblical. And they say, and we're we're still being steadfast. We're still strongly evangelical. Well, I don't know which scripture they're referring to, mm-hmm. but that to me just shows the the absolute brokenness of critical race theory. And they actually want to, they say they just want to change the Multi-Placement Act, but what they want to change is they really just want to repeal it because they don't, they don't believe that, that race should be eliminated as a factor. They think it should be a main factor in placing wow. children in homes. Wow. And see, what I don't think a lot of people understand, at least when I was working in foster care and group homes and things like that, the the statistic was that black and brown people generally didn't do foster care. That wasn't our thing. Now, would we do kinship care? Yes. So we will. But kinship care is usually under emergency circumstances. So now. And let me give a little a little bit of the difference. And you are the definitely the expert. So let me know if I'm wrong. But out here in California, what happens is that I get trained to do foster care. I get trained to have a, a child placed in my home. But it, under kinship care, the kid has been removed from the the birth parents, the nuclear family. They don't the first look isn't to put them in the system. The first look is to put them with family. So if there is an aunt or uncle, some grandparent, something like that, they'll put them with that with that person. That's kinship care, which is different than foster care. But by and large, we aren't doing foster care. We're not going out creating a lot of space in our home and saying, hey, I got this extra bedroom. Let me go get a child. It's normally under emergency circumstances. And so when you look at kinship care versus foster care, you do have a lot more kids who are staying in the foster care system when social workers or placement advocates and things like that are saying, well, this child needs to be placed with a black or brown person because they're black or brown. Now, all of us as Christians here, you know, we're very committed. We have, you know, we're, we're putting our lives on the line, our families on the line to say this is going to be our stand. It's going to be for biblical, to be biblically faithful. And one of those positions is that, like Ryan said, there's only one race. Mm-hmm. There's the human race. We're all descendants from Adam and Eve. There's this fake racial hierarchy of we're going to rank people according to their melanin. That's something that we're constantly calling people away from uh, on the show and in our ministry. So we're just taking that 
also in the realm of adoption and saying, you know, adoption is an interesting issue because in Christianity, it is one of the ways that God has revealed our relationship to him and to each other. Maybe Ryan, you can talk to us about the Christian idea of adoption and why so many Christians care about this issue. Because it's the essence of salvation. Adoption is the essence of salvation. And for Christians, adoption shouldn't be second nature. It should actually be first nature. And we have great examples. People typically go to the example of Moses, but I find it interesting. They don't actually go to the example of Christ because here you had Joseph, who obviously was not biologically related to, to the Messiah, but yet he chose to take care of him and love him as his son. I mean, he could have chosen to leave, but he chose to love instead. He could have chosen, you know, abandonment, but he chose adoption instead. And so we have such, such a powerful example. God designed our, our rescue and our redemption through adoption. Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us to adoption through his, uh, to sonship through Jesus Christ. There's a reason why adoption is used even throughout scripture, because the authors understood what adoption meant. When you were adopted, especially in Roman culture, you were adopted, you could no longer, that, that tie could not be severed. Your inheritance was, was permanent. And so we as Christians have so many misconceptions and misperceptions about adoption and always thinking it as second best or even lower down the list and not understanding that it's, it is a viable and an equal option to a biological parent choosing, choosing to parent his or her child, but it's often seen as something that is shameful and something that is disgraceful. In fact, I will tell you, I, my wife and I spoke at a marriage conference and one of the, one of the sponsoring organizations, the Christian organization, I won't mention the name, but the leader of that organization said, we're really concerned about the keynote speakers. We're concerned about the fact that they're really emphasizing adoption. Well, adoption's not biblical. And I'm like, um, have you read the Bible? Yes. <laughs> um, there is no salvation without adoption. Of course, it's biblical. But too many Christians just have, I mean, even today, people will talk, you know, will ask me about adoption. And then they'll say, well, oh, is, is this a hard thing to, to talk about? Because they think it's shrouded in shame. Like, I'm, ex- I'm ecstatic that I was adopted. I'm, and, and I understand it comes out of brokenness. Yes. Um, but in the natural and the supernatural, adoption brings healing and restoration. And it's a process. It's not all like happiness and parties. I understand that. I know that I lived it, but it is a journey toward healing. And it is such a powerful act of love on the birth parents part. And of course, the adoptive family's part. That's, that's beautiful, man. Yeah. Goodness gracious. That's powerful. Okay, so as I as I said earlier, we've had a fair amount of contact with parents, white parents, who are concerned about colonizing their adoptive kids or um, racially traumatizing their black and brown adoptive kids. One have have you seen a rise in this this way of thinking along with the critical race theory in the adoption um, organizations, and then what? like insight or um, thoughts would you share with parents who are looking to adopt, but find themselves in this struggle of, you know, do I just, you know, get a white child and we just keep our family together and we don't have to worry about that. Or do I allow but there, the Lord but to, to I've even heard like 
prominent, sem- a very prominent seminary mm-hmm. on the East Coast had a whole conference about this. And they told white people, you should only adopt white children. And no, all I'm asking <laughs> so is... This you, is not like some fringe idea. I don't think it's a fringe idea. Yeah. I'm just saying... One, have you seen the rise yeah. in it? But what are his like? What are your thoughts? Like, do you, you kind of like you know what? Yeah. What would you say to that? That's like, what's what your I, response. Yeah. To that? Yeah. Wow, there's just so much to unpack with this. Let me start with um, comments made by Ibram X. Kendi, of course, the author of How to Be an Anti-Racist, which of course his solution and to be an anti-racist is to actually be racist. So yes, it is. that aside. He remember when um, Justice Amy Coney Barrett was being confirmed and he went into this this screed on online on social media about how Amy Coney Barrett, and her husband, who happened to have off white skin um, and talked about how they were white colonizers and talked about how they had a savior complex. So he calls parents like mine, people who have a savior complex. My parents did not have a savior complex. They had a love reflex Mm. And Dr. Kendi, or I should call him Henry Rogers, since that's his name, doesn't understand that that nature of love because he doesn't understand and he rejects the God that we serve. In fact, he is one, if you, there's a YouTube video where he talks about how he rejects savior theology. Yes. You know, he he holds on to this whole black liberation theology and he says anti-racists fundamentally reject savior theology. Mm -hmm. Well, then you don't know my savior. And so when people talk about this whole colonizing, oh my gosh, I'm sorry, I could roll my eyes. I couldn't roll my eyes harder when I hear that. First of all, I hate these words that are used to demonize an act of love. They're not colonizing. You know what? Adoption is an act of symbolizing, not an act of colonizing. It's symbolizing what scripture calls us to do, symbolizing the adoption in the spiritual sense that also happens in the natural. It's an act of uh, you could say emphasizing, emphasizing God's love and compassion and mercy, and not just for the child, but for birth parents in those situations, um, for the, uh, you know, for the parents who've had their their rights severed. It, it's an act of compassion too, and because oftentimes a lot of these situations are are open adoptions. Mm-hmm. And, and adoptive families get to show love also, not just to the child, but to the birth parents as well. Uh, and it's an act of, it's really the whole thing about colonizing. For me, adoption is exercising God's love and carrying that out. The, the, the problem, and I, and I get this all the time in the events, because I, I have white couples who will come up to me, and even mixed couples sometimes, who will come up and say, you know, we've been dissuaded from adopting a Black child. We've been dissuaded from doing this because we have to have X number of of friends and X number of elements in place. That to me is so insane. It's so racist. No different than the National Association Association of Black Social Workers when I believe it was in 1972 that decreed a Black child should never be raised in a white home for any reason. Mm -hmm. That was racist. And this mentality today, anyone ever saying that white people should only adopt white children, that's entirely racist. The nonsense that somehow your color dictates what kind of parent you will be. And what does that say about mixed couples? My wife is Greek and Italian. I mean, what, is, what does it say about mixed couples? That mm-hmm. you, somehow there's, there's confusion and that they are um, you know, not as adequate as same color parents. It is such a broken and toxic ideology. And this is the byproduct of critical race theory 
that is seeping in like this is spreading like a cancer, not only in the adoption world, but also our church for for a leader to even say white people should stick to adopting white people, white children. I'm like, is this 1962? What's happening right now? Right. Yes. But gosh, the more I talk with people who are leaving their churches and um, feeling isolated in this conversation, the more I see that it is prevalent, it's insidious, that this conversation is happening more and more. And it's happening in primarily white evangelical churches where that shame conversation is just like running rampant in some areas. I'm starting to think that adoption, uh, interethnic adoption is going to start to be kind of like, oh, that's a Christian distinctive, you know, that Mm -hmm. we're open to that. And that's almost, um, you know, confront a a worldview confrontation simply by being an interethnic family on some level, because our faith tells us that the thing that we ought to look for in a mate is not how much melanin they have, but how faithful they are to the Lord. That's the first thing we look for. Mm -hmm. And when we're thinking about loving our children, we think about them as human persons first. We don't think about their melanin first. And so it's almost a, a, you know, it's, it's, it's going to become, I think a a kind of a radical position to, to be an inter-ethnic Christian family in, in some sense. But I think that there's also the real struggle, like we can all agree with the ideology that CRT is toxic and, and this is why we do what we do as Christians. But then these families have to live in the real world yes. where people make comments about their children. Mm-hmm. People come up to them and, and peers talk to children who are growing up in, in inter-ethnic families and are like, you know, asking very probing questions or trying to siphon them off into CRT ideology. And I'm just wondering, Ryan, you know, as you were growing up and especially as you were transitioning in your teenage to young adult years, like how did your parents help you navigate that so that you were staying strong in your connection with them as a family Mm -hmm. and not drifting off into black liberation theology or, or that kind of ideology? Right. I was loved like crazy by my parents. And that first and foremost is the most important foundation Um, because without that, um, I wouldn't be the person that I am with an identity that is firmly rooted in Christ. Because if your identity is not rooted in Christ, it will be uprooted by everything else. And so as someone who is white and black mixed genetically, um, I mean, what am I supposed to do? Live in perpetual confusion? And have to say, I'm this or I'm this. No, I'm actually all of this. But this beautiful melanin, I mean, it doesn't dictate who I am. doesn't tell anybody what my experiences are. And so when I see this being embraced, it to me is so devastating. Because I look at our family, for example. Our family, because of the way they look, my parents never pretended like they didn't say, you know, well, I don't see your color. Yes, they saw our color and they loved our color. We always... We celebrated the fact that we looked different and we had different experiences. But what was so beautiful with our family that obviously stood out in our predominantly white uh, community was that we started influencing a community that initially was resistant to my parents transracially adopting 
Mm. These children, well, they don't look like you. you how are you going to raise a child who doesn't look like you? How are you going to raise a child who's disabled? How are you going to raise a child who's black? And you're my parents didn't listen to the naysayers. Thank God they actually followed the calling on their heart. And because of that, I will tell you to this day, we continue through social media. I get messages all the time from people, you know, in the community that I grew up in. They were so moved and inspired, some inspired to adopt, some who faced some of their 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 you know, some of their racist perspectives on things. And it changed because of the influence of our family. And if you take that away, you know, you speak this kind of fear and nonsense that somehow you all have to look the same in order to be a family, you, you miss out on opportunities to speak that this biblical beauty to the rest of the world. I mean, I'm a firm believer, Christ before color. I mean, I could rattle off verse after verse, you know, like, uh, Galatians three twenty eight, or you know John thirteen thirty four, Colossians three um, thirteen, which is one of my my favorite verses, talks about you know the, the how about forgiving others and making allowance for other people's faults. We, if we don't have Christ before color, we get this this broken worldview that forces us to look through the the broken lens of race, the broken lens of class, the broken lens of fill in the blank. You see, I I, I won't do that. And as someone who is black and black and white, my heart is to reconcile. I will always look through the breakthrough filter of Christ because it changes the way you see the world. It changes the way that you see individuals and it changes your heart for the situations and, and, and compels your heart to respond so differently because you see people as image bearers of God, regardless of what they look like and what situations they've come from and what situations they're in. But what I hear in that is a, a, a posture that I really want to bring out to the forefront of people's awareness that you, Ryan, and it sounds like your parents instilled this in you, that there's a posture of we will not be ashamed. Mm -hmm. We will not be fearful. Mm -hmm. We are who we are. We are this in Christ. We are Christians. This is our stand. We'd be happy to share it with you if you'd like to know. But they it doesn't sound like your parents are the kind of people that we're going to engage in a bunch of over explaining so that other people would approve of what they were doing or a swaying of the culture or community. Yeah. Like they weren't swayed by that. No. It, it, the most beautiful thing about my parents, it, they weren't political people. You know, you can have some who are very overtly political and I'm not denouncing that at all. Well, my parents weren't political. They were just, they just lived it out day after day, and they hardly needed to even say anything. That's the whole thing too about critical race theory. It has so much just word jumble, word scramble. It's like piles and piles of nonsense rhetoric to try to explain something so simple. And that's why, you know, when John 13, 34, when we're called to love one another, when you love someone else, you don't want harm to come to them, period. When you love someone else, you're going to give your life for them. When you love someone, you know, as, as Christ loved us, obviously he gave his all. In fact, on the cross, this is the other thing I love. What did he do for the, the religious leaders who betrayed him, the religious leaders who were so jealous and wanted him um, sacrifice? Um, what did he do for the Roman soldiers who were gambling for his clothing? What did he do for the people who were calling for his crucifixion? He didn't say, well... <clears throat> you're my oppressors and I'm going to um, expect some perpetual guilt out of you. No, father, forgive them because they know not what they do. 
So here you had real oppressor slash oppressed paradigm, Jesus being the oppressed, and he forgave his oppressors. He died for his oppressors. So that's why critical race theory to me is just so much nonsense out here when life is really not that complicated in the sense that when you see other people the way that God sees them, your behavior has to be different. When you've given your life to the Lord and you say, I am a Christian, I am Christ-like, my identity is in Christ, I want to be like him, it changes everything. Sadly, we have a history where you know individuals and, and the church decided they weren't going to be Christ-like. You know, and we don't need another 50 years of church, you know, 50 years from now, church leaders saying, I'm sorry, um, we had this wrong denomination saying, I'm sorry, we had this wrong. Wake up now Mm -hmm. and realize what you're doing is spreading this cancer to the point that it is infecting and affecting so many others. And when we talk about adoption, the most vulnerable children in our society are being impacted by the embrace of a broken worldview. And Krista, um, not that we weren't listening because we was, don't take this the wrong way, but Krista was just mentioning, she was like, I love his confidence. And this is where, you know, the yes, adoptive families, but also the body of Christ, regardless of your skin color, this is where you have to get like, look, this is what I believe. This is who I am. This is what I'm standing on. And if you want to go, you're going to have to like, but we're not there yet. We're not there. I feel like as, as, a Christian community at large, many times, like we, we tend to want to make nice, as you would say, or not want to ruffle the feathers. Sometimes you got to be okay if that bird is squawking because, (laughs) because people are going, I mean, what's the alternative that you live move like swayed to and fro by the culture swayed to and fro by the opinions of people. We can't live like that. And I love um, your story about your parents and just their commitment to be firm and to walk in kind of God confidence. Like, look, this is what the Lord is telling me to do. This is what, what he's put in my heart and we're going to operate in that. And yes, our family, we have a, a friend of the ministry and she has, adoptive kids. Um, and she herself is black. Her husband is half white, half Asian. They have shirts that say my family doesn't match. And so, (laughs) you know, it's like, if your family don't match then walk in the confidence, it's okay. (laughs) But knowing that your family didn't match your, your Mm -hmm. parents still raised you with a confident identity of who God has made you to be. And that's, I, I would assume that not everyone, not all of your siblings are biracial. So I, I see that you are biracial, but you know, they, that was something that had to be instilled regardless of skin color, regardless of melanin, regardless of, of hair texture and all of those things. Yes. I bring up the hair. Texture. I know. Every don't time. don't yes, play no game. Yes. No, it's real. It is. It, real. It's important. It is. It's important. It is. And those are elements too. This is the thing that CRT always messes up because there are elements that are important. Cultural mm-hmm. competence to an extent, absolutely. That's important. History. My mom had me read about all kinds of famous African-American. I mean, that's why I felt like I knew when I went to college, I knew more than a lot of my, 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 my black friends who grew up in a black community from a historical perspective. My mom felt that that was really important. We had friends. We were friends with families who looked like us. Um, they were intentional about some of those things. But that does not exclude somebody, however, 
from being able to adopt a child who doesn't quite look like them. But I do think there, there is an importance there because identification, is, we can't deny the identification. Like if you're the only one in the room, it looks like that. You don't want all eyes on you all the time and feeling like that. But I, I understand that, that that is important. It's just, again, where do we place culture? Um, it, it, love is first and foremost. Permanence and love are most important. You can teach culture. And then how do you even define culture? Yes. Because, you know, black culture is not some monolithic thing, just like white culture is not. I mean, I grew up in Pennsylvania and Dutch culture. And if anybody knows about Pennsylvania and Dutch, Amish, Mennonite, my grandparents were Mennonite. Our culture wasn't the same as the, the people next door who happened to be white. And they weren't the same as the people across the street who happened to be white. Very different things. And that's the other thing about these families that don't match is that you actually become a culture altogether different because it becomes a syncretic sort of thing because you're you're borrowing not just you're borrowing different histories you're borrowing different cultures like my sister is Vietnamese and I don't know how many people had spaghetti with kimchi and then I don't exactly recommend it but she she was trying to mix some of the things that she liked but it becomes a culture completely different and that's why this 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 kind of oversimplification where CRT, it's oh, it's white, white people, white this and black that. Give me a break. It is, we are far more, there's, there's a far wider array of us and all of our different hues than this simple dichotomy of white and black. Uh, we have a Facebook group and I want to encourage people that, that can go uh, uh, join our Facebook group. We have a support group. For inter-ethnic families, we have a lot of transracial adoption families in there getting support, praying for each other, helping each other navigate everyday life together. You know, like our friend Kathy Anderson, who lives in very, very white Utah mm -hmm. and has African-American, she and her husband have African-American kids. And, you know, there's some real challenges to that, you know, finding and one of the questions that they were asking in the group that they would love us to talk about a little bit is about, you know, how important is it to find authentic experiences for those kinds of kids when they're living in predominantly white communities and they're from a different ethnicity? Like, because there was a lot of parents that were saying, you know, how much time and attention do I put into trying to create these authentic versus contrived experiences, you know, for um, people that look like my children. This was a big, a lot of parents chimed in on this and wanted you guys to talk about it. So I don't know, putting go it out ahead, there. Go ahead, you the guest, go <laughs> ahead. Cause I, I have, oh yeah, go ahead. Okay, well, see there again, it's kind of, <sighs> There's so much emphasis on that. And what does that look like? And of course, in 2022, it's so radically different because we have the internet, because we have, uh, you know, an entertainment world that is so, so different and so diverse to where it's really hard for a, a child growing up anywhere in the United States to not see reflections of himself or herself. Is it important to see those reflections in real life? Yes. But there again, it's not a disqualifier. I mean, if you're in Wyoming and the, you don't have, you know, maybe there's not an AME church there or a Kojic church, you know, around the corner, 
Uh, I don't think that childhood is going to be permanently scarred. In fact, that's why I love some of the research from, from Rita Simon, um, the late Rita Simon, who did a lot of studies, longitudinal studies on transracial adoption and talked about how well-adjusted uh, children who were transracially adopted, how well-adjusted they are. I know there's a movement today that is so, I mean, it, it, even before CRT has really emerged so prominently that we're really against um, these kinds of adoptions. And I find it so tragic because it's the fixation with, with culture. And, you know, you could have all the culture thrown at you. Let's say culture became the preeminent thing, right? Well, culture doesn't prevent you from dealing with, you know, the, the larger issues of life, but being loved does prepare you. And I will tell you, as someone who went through um, some, some really difficult things in my life as a young adult, it wasn't all the cultural things that I experienced in person, or it wasn't the, all the history that I had read. It was actually my parents loving me and instilling the faith in me that helped me through some very dire times in my life. So I understand that people have these questions and they want these authentic sort of experiences, but I, I honestly do think they're over, they're overrated. Love your child. Talk about your child about some of these, these issues in a realistic sense and give them context. Don't do the whole narrative like Bethany Christian Services did in their training video called um, How to Be an Anti-Racist Family, where they paint the world as a, just a, I mean, honestly, it must be in the 1960s in their mindset, and yet the video just came out last year about how racist the world is all around them. Mm -hmm. Don't talk to your kids. I, I, my kids are all different shades. My youngest son is, is black and my other kids are all mixed. And we talk the same to all of them. And we ask them questions and we let them think about it and we let them ask us questions. But we have to be very careful of not making all of that stuff so dominant that that's all they're thinking about. Yes. And it, it, so it's a balance and it's not an easy balance. But if, if the cultural aspect becomes the, the destination and the focus all the time, I, it then becomes the fixation. And I have yes. seen that in so many families to where now the college age students who have now gone out turning against the parents because now they're hearing all the CRT at college and they're like, well, I didn't get this and I didn't receive this and I wasn't culturized this way, but you were loved, right? You were nurtured. They paid for your college. I mean, the list goes on and on. It's, oh, see. it's I wish devastating. Mm, mm, mm. If I had a kid who, who was like, you know what? I'm gonna cancel you because you're a colonizer. I'd be like, and honey, I'm canceling my credit card on that college payment. I wish you would. Now, see, I know that that's just that that's probably not holy and godlike, but it might be. You go ahead and can't cancel be. me if you want to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That BA will be cut short. You just gonna have a B. <laughs> the devil is a lie. <laughs> it's just a lie. Okay. I think my thoughts on it. Um, so again, to remind people yeah. about the question mm -hmm. is that, you know, how important is it for the child to have what are called culturally yeah. authentic experiences? I look at it this way and I didn't always look at it this way, but now I do. Ryan might not way. know that Monique used to be a big critical race theory advocate. Yeah. There's that. Until mm -hmm. like five minutes ago. It she, was not five minutes ago. The devil is a lie. Two years ago. All right. Three. 
Oh, the Lord don't like ugly. Don't do that. <laughs> okay. Not so, that long ago. Um, <laughs> but that's even better. I, yeah. You're right. Because see, I no, can I can fresh. hit you with your own stuff. Right. Um, I think my thoughts on it is that if I had, I don't have kids. Um, if I had kids, I would want them to know about the family they're being raised in. And yes, we have our nuclear family and we can know about the culture from, you know, whatever our, our ethnic background is. But what's even to me larger than that is our our family of God. And, you know, so how how do I know about my cousin who lives in, you know, South Korea? How do I know about my cousin who's from Nigeria or from Botswana or something like that? So at that point, I just feel like it's just about learning about people across the world and it doesn't have to be this intentional like if i don't do this then i'm bad you know but how do we how do we make learning about the people that god has created other image bearers a part of our daily you know not daily routine but but something that's regular so all of this is predicated on what i hear both of you kind of saying is a lot of this is embedded in discipleship with yeah. a child. It's a, it's a daily orientation of giving them a different perspective on what's happening in the world. Here's how we think about these things as a family. Mm-hmm. But if parents are trapped in a posture of fear and trapped in a posture of self-doubt, you know, that's going to make those conversations, you know, a lot harder. Like to me, the foundation of, exploring other cultures, so to say, would be Christ or it should be Christ because or or God, because we are created in God's image, like we're created in his image. So, you know, what about these image bearers here? What about those image bearers there? It's not this thing of you must because you're white or you must because I'm white or things like that. It's, you know, God first, the the culture of the kingdom first um, image bearer like that, that historically Christian language, because when you move away from that to put the the cultural aspect first, where now culture is the most important thing, you will lose the true first thing, which should be Christ in his kingdom. Okay. All right. Let me hit you with another question from our group. Um, they were asking, um, are there talks that they should be having with their children of color, especially I think their black children, that they need to make sure to be intentional about having those talks that they might not have with their white children. Okay. So let me break this question down for you. They trying to ask, <laughs> do I need to have a police talk with my, with my black child, but not my white child? Gosh. That's what the, that's Honestly, the question. It, that, it's to me, to be honest, that is so cliche. I, I, I actually get so tired of hearing that because I grew up in a family of mixed you know, everything. And our parents talk to all of us the same about how we deal with a lease. One, we respect authority and, and whoever that is, especially adults, we respect them. And when it came to the police, it was the same deal. My white brother was told the same thing that I was told. Yep. I mean, this, this nonsense of something. And, and I know you said, you know, children of color. Can I just say, I have a certain pet peeve with that. Um, just the of color, people of color, because one, we took an adjective colored people and we turned it into a noun now people of color and who isn't a color i mean unless you're transparent who isn't a color but it it gives this it elevates people and this is my problem with it like why should my son who happens to be i guess blacker genetically 
Why should I have different talks with him? The way that he relates to other human beings should be exactly the way that my other children. And if we happen to adopt more children, because we're, we're in a holding pattern of four, and we happen to adopt more children, and they, they could very well be white, they could be very well be Asian, they could very well be whatever. Mm-hmm. I am not going to address the way that we deal with other human beings differently. And part of this whole thing about the police talk is still kind of enveloped in this completely colorized narrative, particularly from the political left, that wants us to constantly live in fear. You know, when LeBron James uh, can talk about how, you know, his tweet, you know, black men were literally hunted every time we come outside of our homes. I'm like, give it, please, hunt. You're hunted by paparazzi. Okay, that's right. who you're hunted by every time you come out of your home. But give me a break. This whole culture of fear. Like even we look at Black Lives Matter, the the latest stats from Washington, uh, the Washington Post, the database on individuals killed by cops. 139 individuals were killed by cops um, in 2021. There were over 239 uh, who were white individuals who were killed by cops. 80% of all of those individuals were armed with a deadly weapon. But it doesn't matter because this is this is the this is the the context by which we're talking about. I need to have that conversation. I'm not saying that racism doesn't exist. Of course I'm not. I mean, I speak on all, you know, I speak on issues of racism, particularly the systemic racism of the abortion industry. But we have to distinguish between systemic racism and specific racism. There are specific instances. We no longer live in a, in a culture where um, systemic racism is codified. We don't have a Jim Crow mm-hmm. America anymore. So it's very different. And so that's why I, I reject this kind of approach that we have to have a different conversation depending on the melanin content of, you know, of a certain child's skin than, than others because a large part of the narrative is so false. Yeah. And I refuse to have my children constantly living in a state of fear. Are there mm-hmm. evil people out there? 100%. We, as long as humanity exists, evil will exist. Racism will exist. Do we fight to reduce it? Do we fight to eliminate it? Absolutely, 100%. But there's so much not going on <laughs> that we're told is going on. Yes. And so that's why I take the approach that, no, I'm not going to have a different conversation. You treat people with respect. You treat people with humility. You treat people the way that you want to be treated. And that really goes across the board. Very good. All right. One last question. All right. No, I was going to say, um, two comments and they're not questions, but they're comments that I think are absolutely hilarious. Um, we need to get feisty dot, dot, dot with love. That's from Mel. I'm like, yes, can we, we just need to step up a little bit. We can get feisty. It's okay. In Jesus name. Um, and then Kevin says he is my new cousin. Kevin's your, your other, he's, he's been a recent, guest on your stream yes yes <laughs> kevin has been a recent guest on our family meetings yeah. but i absolutely love it love it love it yeah okay what's the last all question? right last question um our daughter is transitioning to college soon she can pro she's her, their daughter's black she but she mostly relates to white culture from mostly being raised around white people the black student, the parents concern is that the black students will likely see her as not black enough. How can we support or prepare her for this? 
Well, that's why these conversations, these open conversations are important. It is, is important to talk about the dynamics, talk about here's the biblical uh, perspective, but yet here's the world's perspective and here's how they're going to react. In fact, I just had a conversation with all my kids today. I said, regardless of how you guys feel, people are going to first see uh, certain people are going to first see that you're brown and immediately say you have to categorize yourself or well, refuse to be categorized. Amen. Don't don't be don't be boxed in because they can't possibly know you by your melanin. So I just had that conversation on the way to this this basketball tournament with my kids. So um, college is such a place of uh, how should I put brainwashing? I mean, a lot and even Christian colleges. So parents do need to have these conversations with their children, regardless even of, of their hue, because as a Christian parent, you have to prepare your child. Hey, mm -hmm. there are going to be all these unbiblical, um, you know, these unbiblical narratives that are going to be spoken to you. They're, they're rarely going to ever even touch actual scripture because they say that it's, you know, this is a Christian perspective we should have. Well, then you should probably use scripture once in a while. But in that situation, I, I know what that is. I experienced that throughout college, not white enough, not black enough. And that's why it, we have to emphasize that we cannot live in a state of perpetual confusion, that my identity is first in Christ. These other attributes are somewhere else down the line. But if that, if that identity is not solid, it will be easy to actually hear that stuff and allow it to hurt you. I, I feel comfortable in any environment. I can be in an all white environment. I can be in an all black environment. I can be in an all Asian environment. I can be in a mixed environment. I don't care. I wish I would have understood that. And I, I wish I would have understood that better. I, mean, I know my parents tried to, to relay that to me. I wish I would have understood that better as a freshman, sophomore, and junior. It wasn't until my senior year that I started catching on to that. But she, she just needs to be comfortable with who she is and just be who she is. Because the problem is they're going to say, well, yeah, I mean, those I heard this. You're not black enough. You don't, you don't talk black. You don't walk black. Well, what does that even mean? I just heard that the other week. What does that mean? <laughs> what does that? Mm -hmm. I am so tired of people trying to so narrowly define what that is. And there again is is the problem of we are assuming that color dictates all of these things. No, not for me. And and what does it say about the black? perspective or the black person, you know, if you're doing something that is, you know, like educational or you're, you're speaking prop proper or something like that. And well, you're not black enough. So does that mean that I should go around using memory bonics or go around using, you know, slang all the time and words that don't make sense or just making up my own words? Like, no, no, come on. Frederick Douglass, <laughs> two words, Frederick Douglass. One of the probably the one of the most incredible orators in American history, uh, who also what by the way was conceived in rape, and the circumstances of his conception didn't change the condition of his worth. One of the most eloquent writers ever. So it's just nonsense to think that you can categorize somebody by the color of their skin, and it's it's that's actually the racism of lowered expectations. Yes, here in Loudoun County, Virginia, where I live, they're saying that it's it's white to get your answers right in math. That okay. math is racist. It's white to show your work. I'm like, yep. what? So you're saying it's white to actually simply just act intelligent? That's insane. Mm -hmm. That's racist. 
And this is the kind of stuff that the kids will get in college. They're getting it in high schools. We're fighting it here in Loudoun County. This is the kind of nonsense where they're saying this is being white and this is being black. And I got to say, Christians, stop with that. Get to the word that actually speaks in black and white. And I'm speaking rhetorically, like black figuratively in black and white. Here's what is right. Here's what is wrong. Here's what is righteous. Here's what is sinful. And if we don't get a hold of what that truly is, we're going to be misled by the world at every turn. That's good. You know what? If you hear any of this part at Wilberforce, you just look straight ahead because I'm taking notes. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here, being with us. Will you please um, just tell all the viewers about your organization, how they can get in contact with you and um, what, what you guys do ministry? at the, yeah, yeah, what you guys do there? Absolutely. My wife, Bethany, and I, um, my wife is my favorite person on the planet, but we've started the Radiance Foundation back in 2009. She was a teacher for 13 years in both public and private school. And I was a creative director working in the ad agency world. We wanted to tackle culture shaping issues, but from a biblical perspective, a grace-based, fact-based biblical perspective. And so the Radiance Foundation, which you can find us online at Radiance, R-A-D-I-A-N-C. Oh, that's my daughter right there, actually. That's that's Ray Ray. Her oh. name is Radiance. Can I just quick sh- tell you this? Radiance, my wife was a single mom for almost two years. And she found herself in an abusive relationship, walked away only to discover that she was pregnant. And so she went through the same fear and confusion that a lot of you know, young women go through. And she never considered abortion, but the pressure on her as a teacher was so intense. Her, you know, the biological father to Ray Ray wanted her aborted, but Bethany refused. She chose to be stronger than her circumstances. And that little girl was named Radiance after Psalm 34.5. And it says, you know, I sought the Lord um, and he relieved me of all my fears. Those who look to him, their faces are radiant. They will never be covered with shame. And that's why she was named Radiance. The reason for the name of our organization, because God, God transforms, he rescues and he redeems. And it's what we try to do through the Radiance Foundation. We, we launch ad campaigns, billboard campaigns. We speak in 60 different events every year, keynote events across the country in places like Harvard. University of Notre Dame, Princeton, the list goes on and on, just speaking the truth about all these culture shaping issues. And then we have our, our compassionate community outreaches. We love creating stuff that illuminates at every life, whether you're planned, unplanned, able, disabled, red, yellow, black, brown, or white, or off-white, or whatever it is, every human life has purpose. And that's what we're, we're passionate about. Amen. Thank you so much. You didn't just set it on fire. People in the chat, like, where the fan at? Where the fan at? Y'all, my arm gonna fall off. I fan everything. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank um, you, Ryan, so much. And yeah. uh, we found you through uh, a follower who I guess was fr- knew you in college, Dana Fripp. And she was the uh, one that. Dana. Was, yeah. She's a follower of the ministry mm-hmm. and she was the one that got me on to you and then I started following you and so she was she was how I found you so yes. yeah oh I love Dana uh, one quote from her can I kind of quote Dana Fripp because in our <laughs> class first of all she's a phenomenal artist but in our class I remember one time she sat there and we were talking about cultural issues and she said you know what she said God's gonna need to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah because she was saying look at where we are today and I was like never heard anybody say something like that. God needs to apologize. I mean, I know she was joking, but she was just talking about how bad our culture was. And that was like 
how can I say this, decades ago in college, <laughs> but Dana Fripp, we love Dana Fripp. Yeah. She, is, she is just, she is bold. She will just say things like they are. Yes. And it's coming from a, a place of love. So yeah, thank you, Dana. Yeah, for, very you know, good. Yes. Well, thank you, Ryan. With these two right here. Yes. <laughs> thank you so much. It's great to have you on, Ryan. Thank you so much. Have a good night. I will. You too. God bless. Bye. God bless. Bye-bye. All right, family. We hope you enjoyed meeting Ryan Bomberger. I've been trying for two years to get him. We finally did it. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, now before we go. All right. Um, and we are leaving soon because we have a flight to catch in the morning. Please That's right. pray for our travels. This week we are gonna we're gonna be gone for the next seven days. Um, but big announcement. Big announcement. I don't really don't really We don't have a drum roll. Yeah. Um there is going to be a new podcast coming. And it will be coming through the Center for Biblical Unity. It is called Off Code, and it will be hosted by Kevin Briggins and myself. Kevin, I'm not sure if he's still in the chat, but he was in the chat earlier. Um, if you have not become acquainted with Kevin, you can go back over um, a few of our family meetings. So this last family meeting from Thursday and then the family meeting two before that. Yeah. So last family meeting, skip one. And then the next family meeting would be Kevin on both of those. The one in between is our conversation with Marcus um, Robinson wow. on diversity, equity, and inclusion. But Kevin and I are going to talk about things that are really pressing in culture. This isn't like a black podcast, but it's things that are pressing within the black community or the black culture. And not to say that our culture is a monolith, but I think what we're seeing in social media is like, well, these are black issues. So we want to bring some scriptural truth to that and invite people into the truth of, you know, what is happening and who do we look to? Is it, you know, black people that we should be looking at and saying, well, Hey, you know, this doesn't really add up or, you know, is abortion really, because of whiteness, we want to bring truth to these things and really have conversations that historically, I would say, have always been held inside the house or inside the kitchen in many black homes. We're going to say the quiet part out loud. Yeah, we're going to say all the quiet things that we normally would talk about just among ourselves out loud, because I think that there are many people who are confused by the by the narrative. There are white people who are confused and saying, you know, I don't know why my skin color is making me responsible for your abortions or your, you know, poverty or whatever. So we want to have these conversations out loud. And, um, and then to people who may be on the cusp of fully adopting social justice narratives and critical race theory and all those things, how do we have a conversation that leads people back into scripture and to say, hey, look, this is, this is the reality. This is what scripture says. And I know culture is really offering you a lot of stuff. But scripture says this, come on back to scripture. So, yeah, I think we recorded the first two episodes today and I'm going to tell you guys, it's, it's going to be a really good show. It's, it's really different than all the things. So it's not replacing all the things. Um, it's not replacing the family meeting, but it is, you are going to be educated, um, cross-culturally, but you're also going to have a very, shareable piece that you can share with people who are kind of social justice sympathetic and they'll find it thoughtful and they might not agree with everything, but it will definitely get them engaged in the conversation. And so we want to create a, a, a resource that people can share, spark conversation, create thoughtful discussion 
on these issues and to, again, kind of try to invite people back who might be, they don't even realize that they're drifting into more progressive ways of thinking, critical social justice ways of thinking, shepherd them back into historic Christianity. You guys are going to really enjoy it. I'm excited. Look for Off Code. It's the name of the podcast. Look for Off Code coming probably in mid-March. They'll be dropping two episodes a month. Yes. Um, Mel says, snatch people back out of the fire. That's my one of my favorite verses sometimes, because right before it, it just talks about, you know, do this in love. Snatch. Yes, honey, I will snatch you in love in the name of Jesus. Okay, I think that's it for us tonight. We are going to go pack. We are going to go pack, because we are yes. leaving in the morning. So. Yes, we are. We are leaving our house. Those of you who are going to be in the Dallas area at the Reality Conference, we look forward to seeing you. Come find us at the booth and uh, pray for us. Uh, while we're on the road that we'll be safe as we travel. Yes. Oh, if you're in the Dallas area, Thursday night, we're going to have a meetup. You can find out information about that on our Facebook page. Just go to the Center for Biblical Unity Facebook page and come hang out. Come get a hug. That's right. All right. All right. Take care. God bless. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.